Welcome to the Canadian Sports Medicine Review Podcast, where we inform, educate, and inspire physicians on topics related to sports and exercise medicine. Your hosts for this episode are Dr. Rich Trenholm and myself, Dr. Janet McMorty from CASM, Canada's authoritative expert on sports and exercise medicine. Today, we are super excited to have the opportunity to speak with Mark Ternopolsky on the profound impacts of the world's oldest medicine that prevents everything. Some will call it the fountain of youth, exercise and its impacts on aging. Dr. Ternopolsky is a professor of pediatrics in the division head of neuromuscular and neurometabolic diseases. He's also an endowed professorship in neuromuscular and neurometabolic disorders, and he currently works on these areas of interest and research at McMaster's University Children's Hospital in Hamilton, Ontario. His main area of research is uh, diagnosis and treatment of neurometabolic disorders, exercise therapy and diagnostic testing for neuromuscular disorders, development of nutraceutical combinations for aging, obesity, radiation, and neurometabolic disorders, participation in national and international clinical trials are a staple of what Dr. Tarnopolsky uh, um, participates in. And he really is starting to take uh, oxida- uh, research in oxidative stress and neuromuscular and neurometabolic disorders to a new level. And on top of all of this, he knows what he's talking about from an exercise point of view, as he's an accomplished endurance athlete, finishing often in the top three of many triathlons, duathlons, trail running and adventure races, Nordic ski races. And this is made difficult by uh, tagging it along with orienteering. So basically plopping you in the middle of the woods and try to figure your way to ski out. And it's kind of humbling, Mark, when we look at your your CV and when you've got a person like Mark sitting in front of you who has an athletic CV that's a standalone document and it's actually longer than his employment and accomplishment CV. It's really good. Wow. You know, I don't know how you do it, but you do. So welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much. I appreciate it. So we had the uh, the pleasure of uh, hearing you talk at the uh, National uh, Annual Symposium for CASM. And uh, that really prompted a lot of us wanting to bring you onto this podcast, which has a broader audience. And it really is awesome to, to see what you're doing and what you what your area of research is is doing is shedding so much light on actually what people are are clamoring at and it seems like you spent the entire career examining the elixir of life or the fountain of youth the antithesis of father or mother time how, how did you stumble into this area of research and what inspires you to keep to keep this moving forward well ever since i was a youngster i was very interested in sport and exercise and when i started in my career in uh, neurology and physiatry and trying to come up with uh, ways to treat patients with nerve and muscle disorders, it was pretty clear that with muscle weakness and mitochondrial dysfunction that we saw in our patients, really the best therapy was exercise. So truly exercise is medicine. And that was an area that uh, I became very interested in. So we did lots of work looking at the molecular aspects in younger people so that we could poke holes in their legs and get muscle biopsies and and really understand the molecular mechanisms and Mm -hmm. to start applying this to uh, patients. But what also became very clear is that uh, there's an abundance of people with mitochondrial disease, and that's human aging. So we became very interested in the sort of secondary mitochondrial dysfunction disorders, um, namely aging and uh, obesity, and to some extent, diabetes as well. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. It's like broad aspects and applications for everything you do so and i mean with with the overall prevalence of these chronic diseases being so you know in our face every day both in our clinic and in our population like how do you see this being a game changer with respect to its importance for our modern society well, I think there's a, a couple of things. Uh, there's no question that we know that exercise is beneficial, and we're going to talk more about the specific types, uh, hopefully, as we go forward here. Um, part of the challenge is uh, accessibility. As people are aware, with COVID-19, uh, that came into sharp focus when the uh, ability for people even to go to gyms uh, was severely curtailed. Uh, and therefore, uh, it got back to something I've always been saying is set up your exercise in your home. Uh, make it a part of your life. 
And uh, although, um, you know, some people can go to the gym and exercise, uh, it may be not feasible. So I think the, the, a big issue is barrier to entry. And what uh, I've always wanted to do is to teach people that going for a walk, getting out, doing this safely uh, is, is the way that you can get out and do exercise on a daily basis. So I think the more people we can get active, uh, the more we're going to curtail certain disorders like obesity, diabetes, uh, and aging-associated uh, dysfunction, including sarcopenia, which we'll talk more about today. Um, and then, of course, there are other things, uh, too, that we'll talk about. Uh, how does nutrition play a role and how can that enhance mm -hmm. things? And we've certainly spent a lot of time working on that as well. So you kind of touched on this briefly, but, you know, I was definitely pretty surprised um, that when I read the fact that only about 20% of people actually engage in the recommended amount of um, minimum physical activity per week. Um, and I know I'm kind of a bit ironic working in my world in sports medicine, we kind of live in this <laughs> yeah. bit of a bubble where we see people who do the recommended for the most part, right? And so I did a bit, you know, the deep dive into why is this the case? You can kind of go into like the history of medicine, you know, the rise of modern surgery and pharmaceuticals and stuff like that, where prior to that, exercise, movement and strength was a big part of what we would prescribe as physicians, because that's really what we had access to and people had access yeah. to prior to, you know, medical technology coming in. But this requires so much time and effort from both the physician as the cheerleader for the patient, as well as the patient, because taking a pill takes mere seconds, but exercise takes time and effort. Um, how, I know this is a large question, but how do you see us overcoming this barrier and changing the mindset and helping people, especially in times of COVID, um, embrace this as a primary form of treatment? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, so many uh, aspects to that. Uh, clearly, I think um, uh, fear of exercise is one thing. I think for uh, especially the baby boomers and you know the um, you know, older uh, adults, um, you know, there's a certain concern. There's um, you know even crazy ideas that people think you're going to increase oxidative stress and accelerate aging when you exercise. And clearly, some of these myths need to be dispelled. Uh, people feel that if you exercise, you're going to damage your joints and you're gonna end up getting arthritis. But studies have clearly shown that those that do regular exercise actually have um, no greater risk of osteoarthritis, and in some cases, even a lower risk, and certainly fewer symptoms. Uh, so certainly dispelling myths is one important way to get people to exercise more. Um, I think uh, accessibility is such a key issue. Uh, when uh, I've traveled to the United States, for example, uh, some of the places I go for a conference, try to go for a run and there's no sidewalks. So it's dangerous to exercise. So I think mm -hmm. society uh, needs to encourage activity, things like bike lanes, um, having safe playgrounds for the kids so that we can start when children are young to get them into the, uh, into the habit. I think also, uh, I have a camp in pediatrics and I'm also in adult medicine, but with my foot in the pediatric door, I think it's also important that uh, we really emphasize physical education in school. I mean, we've had certain governments, I won't say uh, who, tried to cut out physical education, but we're going to pay the price for that because as people become inactive and then uh, they get all of the inactivity-associated disorders, we're all going to pay for that in society. And people, unfortunately, are going to pay for it with their, with their health. Uh, but we do need, I think, a different mindset about physical activity. When I was young, uh, again, it always emphasized the strongest, the biggest, the fastest, sort of the Olympic I original ideas, ideals, I should say, uh, but not inclusivity. And what I think is important is when I look at, for example, I mean, I'm biased from orienteering, but yeah. you can go to the Canadian championships. And I remember you'd be there with some folks that are some of the most elite fit athletes in the world coming, you know, from Europe and, and racing internationally. And then you'd have seven-year-olds doing a white course. So it was uh, in incorporated lifestyle. So as we get older, you know, you could bring your kids to the activity and still people like Ron Lowry and Denise DeMonte, who were the top two Canadian orienteers when I was young, they would mm -hmm. be there and then their kids would be racing as well. So mm -hmm. I think education in school to teach people how to put on snowshoes, how to walk properly, how to do body supported activity, to uh, have things that you can continue to do and maintain is, is, I think, one of the things. So, for example, you have a bunch of teenagers playing volleyball, and then, you know, some go to university, some go to college, some don't. And then 
how many people get together and have uh, nine people on each side playing volleyball. It, it's impossible. But to go for a walk, to go for a bike, to be able to go for a run with your kids uh, with a stroller, it uh, I think is going to be you know one of many things that we need to do to get people more active. And another point too, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but there's so many uh, aspects here. Part of it is, <laughs> well, is we don't learn about it in medical school. I mean, you might have uh, at best one hour lecture on exercise. Yeah. And uh, I think we need the uh, entry to the medical system, i.e. the family doctors, to uh, understand medicine a bit more and to also be able to uh, provide that education. Now, the problem, of course, is that there's no billing code. So, you know, sitting down and, you know, you can you can bill it under certain counseling things, but many people don't have the ability to to actually have have the background to counsel appropriately. You might have an MD behind your name. But, you know, uh, are you a certified kinesiologist? Do you know anything about reps and sets and, you know, VO2 max, et cetera? Mm -hmm. So, again, with full disclosure and my conflict of interest, I've started a company called Exerkine. And part of what we're trying to do is to educate people uh, how to exercise. And, you know, we've come up with seven tips for exercise and seven tips for nutrition uh, that we are going to be distributing to family doctors. And then they can come to a website uh, where we're going to be, uh, you know, trying to educate people on simple things like how do you put on snowshoes? Um, How do you dress for the winter? How do you avoid dehydration? All of these sort of things, I think, that hopefully people can can use these simple tips to get out and enjoy the uh, enjoy nature and stay fit. Yeah, like you're, you're, there's a couple of points that you've you've touched on. You know, fear of exercise is is prevalent. You're like, where do I start? How do I do this? I don't want to start because I don't look like those people that are on Instagram and spandex showing, you know, posing in front of mirrors and and you know, how do I make it? easy. Um, I know that you've, you know, you've referenced uh, Marty Gabala's work uh, with the, um, the high intensity interval training um, uh, the, the programs. And, you know, you, you can get as much benefit from a short intense workout as it, as you can with a prolonged workout. And people often forget that the world is a gym. And their body is the gym. Like they figure they have to have this huge amount of equipment and space and they have to get the fans blowing. Like really it's, it's, it's picking, being mindful when you pick up the groceries out of the back of your car, you know, wheeling your wheelbarrow with a little bit of weight in it. And it's, if you, you can turn anything into exercise. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a good point. Uh, So things like, uh, park your car as far away as you can and walk in. Uh, one, you're going to save the chips on your door and you won't get all stressed out and frustrated when someone bumps the <laughs> side of your car or, you know, uh, crashes their cart into the side of your car. But, you know, all joking aside, you are going to, you're certainly going to be less stressed because you're not fighting to get into that tiny little space. You go to the empty spaces, but you're going to be walking. You're going to count more steps. And, you know, I, I, although it seems simplistic, something as simple as a step counter does encourage. And I see at the end of the day, even though my wife and I do lots of activities, uh, she still says, I bet I got more steps than you when I come <laughs> in at the end of the day. I bet. <laughs> so it, but I guarantee you when you look at it and you think, well, I got to get an extra 500 steps, you're going to park a little further away and, and, and uh, walk in. You're going to uh, take the stairs, not the elevator. I mean, my goodness, I see people even during COVID there's 15 people waiting outside because of restrictions in the elevator. And then they take it to go up one flight of uh, stairs instead of just, uh, sorry, to go up one floor instead of taking a flight of stairs. Um, mm-hmm. But look for those opportunities because they're all around us. And it then doesn't become burdensome or time consuming. It's just part of your life. And at the end mm-hmm. of the day, well, I got 30 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity and I've met the uh, ACSM and CASM guidelines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, one of um, one of my favorite pieces of pieces of advice when I'm seeing my uh, older patients in the sports clinic is, um, you know, a controlled sit to stand. You know, and I tell them to put a chair in a common area that they travel past, and every time they walk past that chair, they have to do a very controlled sit and a very controlled stand without using their arms. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing over such a short period of time how many people come back and say, I did this one thing, one change in my life. It takes 
you know, less than five minutes cumulatively over the course of a day, and my pain's way better. It's 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 crazy how little effort it actually has to take. Right, and uh, that that's a very good point. Uh, like you say, it's all around us, and uh, mixing those type of more strength based activities with endurance type of activities is uh, at the end of the day with all of the research we've done, I think that's the most important issue is that it's a mix and match because as we age, we get weaker and we also uh, decondition or our mitochondria become uh, less efficient. And so you need a combination of both the higher intensity, more resistance type, such as getting in and out of a chair, climbing stairs, uh, combined with um, the endurance type activities. And again, it's a smorgasbord. If someone told me to go swimming and do a half an hour a day, I would rather, you know, eat razor blades. Uh, I can't stand <laughs> but, but, you know, you tell me to go for a trail run and you're not going to get me off the trail. But for other people, again, it would be the reciprocal. They love swimming and they can't stand running. And my point there is find what you enjoy, because yeah. if somebody tells you you've got to do one thing or another, they don't know what they're talking about. It's find your activity. And again, yeah. with kids too, give them a smorgasbord because you put a kid who's, you know, uh, fast twitch fibers, uh, big, strong, and you try to tell them to go for a cross-country run, they're going to not feel good about themselves because they're not going to do well, but they mm-hmm. may be the best uh, shot putter, power lifter, whatever. Um, so exposing children to a variety of activities, really that uh, holds true for adults. Find what you enjoy and you'll stick with it. Yeah. I really like what, you, um, what you've been saying about, you know, fear of exercise and type of exercise, especially in our aging population. I know uh, where I live and where Rich lives and, you know, obviously just in Canada in general, we have such an aging population who have that bit of fear of exercise, more specifically the resistance training, I think, mainly because they think of resistance training being Arnold Schwarzenegger, lift heavy weights, throw them over your head, squat with barbells, et cetera, et cetera. When Mm -hmm. all it could mean, like Rich was saying, is that sit to stand. When you tell them about that, they're like, oh, yeah, that's what a body weight squat is, is what you're doing. And how important it is to do that when most of the elderly patients with OA that I see, they tell me, oh, I go for lots of walks, but they can barely get up out of their chair. And is is that, that would be likely related to sarcopenia correct and like how important that is like why humans age and why we get sarcopenia and that muscle loss um and that's a huge part of what you do yeah Yeah, just for the listeners just maybe explain what sarcopenia is in case they don't know what it is sure sure so uh sarcopenia is essentially the age associated loss of muscle um uh, from an operational definition it's uh when your Uh, muscle mass uh, drops below two standard deviations below the norm. So, you know, that people say, well, what does that really mean? Essentially, as your muscles get smaller, uh, they get weaker because there's this uh, relative uh, relationship between the size of your muscle and the amount of force it can generate. And uh, we know that uh, when your muscles get uh, thinner, and there's a variety of uh, reasons why that happens as we get older, which we can get into, and they get smaller, they get weaker. And when they're weaker and you can't do activities of daily living, it starts to impact your uh, functional independence. And in fact, uh, those over the age of 80, 30% are felt to have sarcopenia to the extent that it impacts their uh, activities of daily living. And what we mean by that is getting off a toilet, going up and down stairs. And, uh, you know, obviously that's accentuated in our patients with neuromuscular disease, but it does happen to older adults uh, in a somewhat slower uh, and uh, later age scale. Uh, But preventing that is important because the weaker you are, the more likely you are to fall. If you're over the age of 80 and you fall and break a hip, there's morbidity and mortality associated with that. So if we can keep people moving, keep those muscles functional. But, you know, I really uh, wanted to follow up also, Janet, on that point about... People can go for a walk, but they still can't get off a toilet. And uh, the late Banked Saltine was one of the you know, classic, you know, canonical exercise physiologists, uh, really an icon in, in the field. And he did some studies looking at older adults in their 70s who could run a marathon, uh, but they had leg strength that was no stronger than the sedentary population. And so myself as an endurance athlete, I've noticed as I'm you know, approaching age 60, Picking up groceries, uh, I built a, a 1,200 square foot deck last year, and I used to be able to carry four and five 16 uh, f- uh, foot long boards. 
no problems. Now I can barely do one at a time. And so I realized that I am, in spite of training, you know, 12 to 14 hours a week with endurance sports, getting weaker. And so I am now incorporating more resistance activity into, uh, reluctantly, I hasten to add, <laughs> I, know it's, I know it's important for me. And uh, so I've been doing leg weights every day, uh, but, you know, I'm just fortunate to have the machine here, but you could equally do that, as Rich said, uh, doing uh, squats as you get in and out of a chair 10 times. Um, mm-hmm. There's many ways you can skin the cat. And we've even published a paper recently, which has relevance to COVID-19, where we provided older adults, both sarcopenic and non-sarcopenic, with a resistance exercise band program. So these are those rubber stretchy bands. They come in uh, uh, color yellow is the stretchiest and black is the hardest uh, to expand. So Mm -hmm. you can uh, increase uh, the resistance with these bands. And we gave them a program and uh, both the sarcopenic and non-sarcopenic folks, we had dramatic and significant uh, improvements in strength with just a simple and inexpensive TheraBand. Well, is that, I guess you know it'd be nice to get a link to that paper, um, and maybe we'll put it in our show notes um, so that people can access that. But um, you know, again, it goes back to the keep it simple, stupid principle. Um, you know, there's four primal movements: there's push, pull, you know, <laughs> squat, and hinge. Right? Like it's four exercises uh, to provide you with that functional fitness, and it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be anything more than that. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Have you ever heard of, uh, this is kind of an aside and I know it's not in the questions and you know, our notes to talk to you, but have you ever heard of uh, something called MoveNet? I've not. Okay. It's, it's interesting. It's a, it's a body weight, um, exercise. I want to say not theory, but it's a, it's a movement, uh, like, you know, a, a organizational movement that is using these primal movements uh, to um, to do things in a controlled way, uh, which will result in functional and multiplanar and complex stability and strength. And um, one of the therapists at my clinic, actually, he's a, he's an instructor of it, uh, and it's more prevalent in the states than it is in Canada. But um, it's amazing that how applicable it is to to every age, young through to old, it's fun, uh, climbing over, you know, rocks and boulders and, you know, walking along balance beams and the adults, the older adults that are engaged in this with, um, osteoarthritis love it because a, it's simple B, they feel like a kid again. They, and they're, they're engaging in fun exercise, not, you know, single plane squat, stand, hinge, push, pull, um, and it makes them more, I think, resilient on the whole uh, over the course of their life for okay, throwing because th- nothing in life happens in one plane, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, um, I, again, another side question. So if we have a bone density, bone mineral density test for osteoporosis, and yes, that is a uh, a prevalent disease as we get older or condition as we get older. Why is there no preventative test for sarcopenia? where it has huge impacts, probably more impacts than osteoporosis. Right. Now, um, you know, sarcopenia, you can measure muscle mass with the DEXA scanner. So Mm -hmm. when you actually get the printout, it'll give you uh, fat mass and fat-free mass. And part of sarcopenia, it's really a triad. So when one loses muscle mass, uh, there's usually a proportionate loss in bone mass because to a first approximation, bones respond to movement and to loading. Uh, through mm-hmm. the piezoelectric effect. So if you don't move very much, bones become more osteopenic and eventually osteoporotic. So those two do tend to uh, segregate. And when you don't move very much, you tend to put on more weight. So generally, uh, and there's a new term out called sarcopenic obesity, uh, where people both have thin muscles, but they also are uh, increasing uh, uh, the percent of body fat. And it all may relate to similar processes of mitochondrial dysfunction, oxidative stress, etc. But uh, exercise is an effective countermeasure for all of those, of course, as you Mm -hmm. well know. And uh, so those three are interrelated uh, processes, uh, absolutely. And your DEXA scan actually gives you a readout of both bone density, muscle mass, and fat mass. So all three of those do come off. Now, Hmm. you can get a sense with very simple tests like forced air climb, get up and go, um, you know, a six-meter walk test. And those, uh, you know, give you a, a sense of the functional implications 
of sarcopenia. So if someone is slow to go up four stairs, if someone's slow to walk six meters, and uh, there's all sorts of scales that we use for our research um, yeah, that have been well validated and published that you could use in the clinic. Um, but generally, someone will tell you if they've got problems, it's hard to go up a flight of stairs. Uh, they have mm -hmm. to use their arms to pull or push themselves off the toilet. Um, they go down in the garden, for example, uh, go to get up and they have to put their hands on their knees or pull themselves up. If, if you get those sort of um, uh, stories from your patients, you know that they're likely sarcopenic or pre-sarcopenic, meaning they're at, at risk. Mm -hmm. And then it's probably much more re reversible than osteopenia and osteoporosis, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a, absolutely has been shown in studies. So when we do exercise studies in older adults, and we've done them for three months, uh, four months, six months, for example, we see significant improvements in mitochondria to improve the, you know, the, the cellular powerhouse of the, of the muscle. We see increase in cross-sectional area of the muscle fibers, increase in strength that can sometimes be just absolutely dramatic. And yet we uh, usually don't see the bone density changing over a six-month period. And most of the research uh, generally states that it takes about a year to see the impact of what you're doing on a bone mineral density uh, measurement. Doesn't mean that those processes aren't going on because we've used things like entilopeptides and osteocalcin and, and other markers of bone formation and resorption to show that the exercise is already starting to have that impact, but it does take the, uh, the year or so before you can actually measure it with, uh, with the scanner. Hmm. So you're, t you touched on, um, you know, kind of, you know, endurance and resistance training. Are there specific types of these exercises that are better than others for people? Is there a difference that you see um, from the molecular standpoint that you're seeing, but also from like a global um, you know, patient perspective? No, I think, um, you know, I'm still a fan of keep it simple. You know, bottom line is get out there and do it. Because if one were to say you've got to bike or you've got to run or you've got to swim, I think it's counterproductive um, to getting the population out. I still think the best way to get people moving is to get them to do everything. And if someone tells me, oh, you got to cross country ski, it's the best thing because your arms are involved. You got to bike, you got to run, whatever it might be. I'd say, show me the evidence because we can show improvements in fitness and mitochondria with cycling. We can show it with cross country skiing. We can show it with running. Um, and so clearly, I think it's more a matter of for endurance, getting out there, getting the heart rate up to the point where, you know, you have to take a pause when you're talking to someone because you're at that uh, sort of threshold, uh, you know, and keep that up for half an hour uh, for sure. Um, but then uh, important to mix it up with either body weight supported activities, um, try and use more than uh, one single motion. So if you're just doing, for example, an arm flexion uh, with, a, with a machine, uh, that's probably not as good for you as doing, you know, as Rich was pointing out, some of these more dynamic, um, you know, body weight supported things where you're uh, having the, the stress spread in a more physiologic manner across several joints. Um, and so even things like body weight supported stuff like planks, side planks, front planks, um, you know, uh, crunches, um, pelvic tilts, all of those things, uh, you're bringing in uh, multiple joints at the same time. And I think that's really important. But also safely after warming up, gardening, splitting wood, all of these things are activities that, uh, that are, are good from a resistance exercise perspective to, to add in. Because I really, uh, you know, in, in the research, you know, I can get into a million studies to show this. I really think as we age, you've got to mix the endurance with the resistance. And whether you do it on the same day or you do one one day and one the opposite, uh, we've done studies where we've even flipped where people did endurance one um, to start and then followed by resistance or vice versa. And the molecular and functional uh, adaptations were no different if you started with endurance and finished with resistance or vice versa. I just wanted to sorry touch back on um, some of the tests you mentioned, kind of four step climb, get up and go test, stuff like that. I was that shot me back to undergrad kinesiology. I remember doing this, um, yeah. doing all those tests and being very humbled. Are these um, tests that you would recommend? in say our like a physician office to take a look at i know I'm, i immediately thought those are tests that i could likely do maybe the get up and go because it's easiest to do i find to almost prove to patients how bad they are which is a horrible thing to say but it's kind of that proof of like look 
look, you're struggling to get out of a chair without using your hand. Do you use those? And is that recommended to use them in clinical practice? Yeah, and uh, certainly um, we use these and we talk about this all the time uh, from our muscular uh, dystrophy and other metabolic disease uh, perspective. But uh, essentially, it's the same literature. The two come together. And when I uh, provide consultative uh, support for people doing clinical trials in muscular dystrophy, a lot of the tests that we use are exactly the same as what people are using for sarcopenia. So I think the five times sit to stand is a good one. Uh, and so in your clinic, you could have uh, people come through and those that you say, oh, this person's really healthy. They play pickleball and they're you know, super fit, uh, you know, just record some times, you know, um, and, and get an average. Um, I mean, there's norms out there uh, where they say, you know, if you're below a certain time and, and, and those are publicly available. But in the own o- your own office, you could have those norms in your standard deviation. But I think in addition to highlighting for the person that they do have some functional uh, issues that they could work on uh, to get them enthusiastic to move forward is also they love to see improvement. And so in our clinic, you know, we've got a hundred thousand dollar biodex dynamometer. People come back and they're just dying to get on it to see, okay, (laughs) Dr. Tarnopolsky, I did my exercises. Oh my goodness. I'm up by 20%. People love that. And I'm telling you, it is such a motivator. So to show that their sit to stand time improved um, and, and, you know, you think, oh, this is wishy-washy stuff, but the test retest on sit to stand, get up and go when done properly is less than 2%. It's unbelievable. And even our kids who are kind of spacey, you know, some have ADHD and Duchenne dystrophy and, uh, and stuff. Um, it is incredibly reproducible, even in those kids. So clearly for, you know, motivated older adults, you're going to get incredible reproducibility. And it takes you just a, you know, a seconds to, to do a five times sit to stand or a get up and go. I know that was a big reason for it's kind of cruel, but my office chairs don't have arms on them. And uh, <laughs> yeah, because I started too. doing this so much and it's almost like the proof is right there. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, yeah, it's a good kind of Kickstarter and a motivator, I think, for people. And even to describe it as like, this is a movement that a human being should be capable of doing. Um, and there's so much you can do to to improve it and also for the longevity of it, which I think is hard. Like you mentioned, sorry, to touch on, like it takes about a year you notice to notice, to, to recognize the molecular changes. Is that correct? No, the molecular changes happen almost instantaneously. Okay, neat. The uh, bone density uh, scan, it takes about a year to realize it. But I mean, after the first muscle contraction uh, within, um, well, the, within seconds of finishing the contraction, we phosphorylate proteins which are signaling molecules, then we upregulate genes, which then lead to, you know, classic physiologic adaptation. So if mm-hmm. you are doing endurance activity, generally the pathway leads to more mitochondria, more blood vessels. When we do strength, we get more contractile proteins. So our ability to release calcium, our ability to, you know, have more cross bridges, so we get the, the bigger cross-sectional area. Uh, you know, we see those molecular cascades occurring within the first uh, contractile set, but to measure it, it takes some time. Muscle, we can measure strength and, um, and muscle size increases within six uh, weeks to two months, but bone takes about a year. Okay, mm-hmm. interesting. That's great. Patients always want instant instant gratification. And I'm like, look, molecularly, there's instant gratification. <laughs> yes. but, 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 <laughs> the but, scientist in me loves it. Yeah, but they will get the strength even before you can see a change in muscle. So That's they're going to see an improvement in their sit to stand uh, within six to eight weeks if they did it every day. I guarantee it. Um, yeah. But they may not see that the muscle feels better or notice that they've lost a little bit of body fat. Um, but functionally, they are better. And it's all about function at the end of the day. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, yeah, totally. And, you know, I, when people come back to the clinic and they say, oh, I'm no better, doc. Like, it just, it's, it still hurts or I'm still, uh, you know, still can't do this. I'm like, okay, like, let's look at, what you do on a day-to-day basis. You, last time you were in, you said you couldn't go up the stairs um, one at a time or go up, you know, tandem tandem uh, stair climb. And I said, well, what's happening now? Well, I can do two of them. Well, there's an improvement. Like you're functionally, you're improving. So mm-hmm. um, that's uh, that's sage, uh, sage advice. Um, it'd be nice. It'd be neat to be able to incorporate these kinds of things into the new vital sign that is being talked about, right? Like uh, they're talking about, you know, including that with the blood pressure, how many minutes a, uh, a week are you participating in exercise? But 
these are, like you said, reproducible actual tests, just like somebody's taking their blood pressure. That's a test. You get a number, you can Mm -hmm. trend it over time. Same thing with these things. Why can't we easily incorporate this? And and honestly, like what Janet was saying, without having without having the arms on the chairs, my physical exam happens from the minute I go get them in the waiting room and watch them walk in, watch them sit mm. down, watch how they turn around. And that to me gives me as much information as my actual physical exam skills. Oh, yeah. There's no question. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I guess we've talked a lot about the effects of exercise and, you know, preventing and reversing sarcopenia. Is there anything like people are looking for something else? Are there any supplements that could help um, dietary interventions, anything like that? Yeah. So, uh, you know, as a clinician, uh, the first thing that uh, that, uh, you want to do in someone is to make sure there's no deficiencies. And uh, it's very clear um, that uh, we do see in Canada, and it's even true in the States, uh, a fairly high proportion of people who are insufficient in vitamin D. And Mm -hmm. in our clinic, when we measure it, 13% are severely deficient. That is less than 25 nanomoles per liter, uh, which is not a good thing for a healthy person, much less somebody who's got muscular dystrophy or a mitochondrial disease. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we check vitamin D um, and uh, we replace it. Unfortunately, our government doesn't see the logic in that, and they uh, charge our patients when they go to a life labs, which is crazy. But uh, you know, I think it's important because uh, the numbers that the you know government guidelines are suggesting of 400 units and 800 units is far too low. Uh, there's mm-hmm. no question that you need at least 2,000 units for an adult to keep uh, 90% of the population in the current Canadian guidelines. So that's number one. Number two, vitamin B12, especially for older adults. Uh, you know, again, in our clinic, which is pretty reflective of society as well, uh, 13% are severely deficient in vitamin B12. Uh, and even if you're low normal in B12, your tissue levels can be deficient. So I think, uh, you know, a low trigger finger for treating B12 deficiency, anyone under 200, I would probably put on therapy and make sure that they stay over 200. Um, those are clearly things in, you know, the common stuff, uh, you know, hypothyroidism and, uh, you know, uh, dysglycemia. So doing an A1C and in person at high risk who has trunkal obesity, you know, doing a, a, a two hour glucose tolerance, I think is important. So that's, you know, low hanging fruit, things that we as clinicians, I think should do when we look at somebody. But then what other things are deficient that we can't measure so easily? And certainly work by Stu Phillips, um, you know, our work that we've done and others has clearly shown that older adults do need a higher protein intake. So, uh, you know, taking in, you know, 0.86, which is what uh, it was when I did my PhD in the area and, you know, Hmm. 1.0 grams per kilogram uh, protein per day. Um, Older adults need about, you know, 1.2 to 1.4 grams of protein per kilogram, but many of them don't get that. So to put it into context, if if you're 70 kilos, uh, 70 grams of protein is for some people hard to get. And so I think uh, taking a look at what people are eating. Is it good quality protein? And the best uh, quality protein are eggs, milk products, lean meats, and fish. All right. And those are the key things. But when you talk to people, if they're having a crumpet and jam for breakfast and a white bread um, sandwich uh, with, you know, some um, processed filler in the middle uh, and then, you know, pizza with uh, no cheese or meat on it uh, for dinner, you know, you're going to get 30 grams of protein, vastly insufficient. So ensuring adequate protein intake is critical. And for some people, myself included, because of my uh, fact that I eat at 530 in the morning and I don't eat till eight at night, um, I also take a boost with, uh, with protein powder just because of the convenience. And when I'm sitting here and I make my coffee, I throw in 20 grams of protein powder, spin it around and I drink it. So there are some times uh, where supplements can be helpful for certain individuals. Um, Certainly a lot of athletes are used to taking supplements as some older adults do, some don't, but if they're not meeting protein uh, um, intake requirements, uh, then uh, sometimes protein supplements are helpful. And clearly, um, you know, uh, we and others have shown that uh, whey protein, which is from milk, whey and casein, uh, which is truly milk because mother's milk and cow's milk have both whey and casein um, are, are important. So the reason why it's important is that uh, whey is very well incorporated into muscle mass. 
uh, as is casein. And whey comes into our system really quickly and it stimulates what's called protein synthesis, whereas the casein uh, takes a little bit longer. You remember eating your curds and whey? The curds are the clump stuff and the whey is the mm. liquid portion. Uh, but Mother Nature is amazing because the whey comes in quickly, we stimulate synthesis. The uh, curds or the casein comes in later and decreases protein degradation. The net result is a sustained improvement in net protein balance. So high quality protein and even work, uh, you know, uh, Stu and, uh, you know, others uh, have done a timing of protein. So if you take it uh, before or shortly after your workout, you tend to incorporate more of those amino acids. So something as simple as, uh, you know, changing the timing of when the protein comes in uh, can be helpful for uh, individuals. Vitamin D, no question that if it's deficient, uh, it's going to limit your gains. Uh, and can we've actually, sorry, just to give you a, a crazy example, we've had people referred for high CK, muscle weakness and fatigue. And all we find is a, in one case, a non-detectable vitamin D completely mm. went uh, back to normal when we replaced it. So uh, that's an extreme case, but, uh, you know, someone that's 10, 25, even 30, very suboptimal, and that definitely will help uh, with their with their gains. Hmm. So that's important. Uh, and, you know, what other things that people looked at? Um, testosterone in men. There's a huge body of literature showing that hypogonadal men do not get the same improvement with exercise. And when even before they start, uh, they show lower muscle strength. And uh, uh, many studies have shown that replacement to a eugonadal state, not super compensating and taking huge amounts, but going back to a eugonadal state uh, does improve muscle mass in hypogonadal men. And you might think, well, that's a, a small proportion of the population, uh, but it's over 30% in those over the age of 60. So, uh, and again, you've got to take it in the morning, uh, fasted, free and total testosterone. So replacement of deficiencies is an important uh, construct. Uh, we've also looked at other supplements. Um, one is called creatine monohydrate. And we've done studies, uh, multiple studies now, as have others in older adults, where when they take creatine and do uh, resistance exercise training, there's a greater increase in muscle mass and strength versus those who train on a placebo. Um, and, you know, uh, Dr. Stu Phillips and Johnny Parisi, uh, two of my former graduate students, uh, did a study, and again, in full um, disclosure, we bought the patent off of them uh, called Muscle 5, where they mixed high-quality protein, which is casein and whey, with uh, calcium, with vitamin D, and with creatine, and showed uh, much greater improvements in uh, strength and function. Uh, and what was interesting in their first study is they showed that there was an improvement in cognition in collaboration with uh, Dr. Jennifer Heights. They showed that those who were taking this now, they did have fish oil as part of it as well. So whether it was the protein and the creatine, uh, but certainly those with fish oil improved cognition, doing resistance exercise band training uh, in those who took the supplement versus placebo. So exercise is good, but you know I think that good quality uh, nutrition and or certain specific supplements, uh, only if they've been tested in clinical trials, uh, uh, can be considered to try and enhance those benefits. And is that where your nutraceutical product comes in or is that is there something yeah, else? Yeah, so, uh, you know, our goal has been to uh, try and um, improve function in people with, uh, with a variety of disorders. Um, and, uh, you know, one that we've looked at based on many, many decades of research uh, is that combination uh, of the vitamin D, creatine, uh, high quality protein um, and uh, calcium uh, with or without fish oil. And uh, that's called Muscle 5, uh, again, in full disclosure, um, because I'm the, the founder of that company. Um, but for people who, you know, you, you can go out and buy them and you can go on our website, see how much is in each one, and you can buy each one individually. We just put it together because it was a bit more convenient. Uh, and, you know, it gives people a, you know, a, a, you can make a shake out of it or put it in your coffee, which I do every morning. Um, mm. And uh, then we also have uh, created a supplement uh, for obesity. Uh, which is called TRIM-7, uh, where we've done uh, six animal studies and a human clinical trial showing the benefits. That's focusing more on the obesity component and mitochondria, uh, which is a, a, you know, some factor as we get older, but also we know that uh, over 67% of the U.S. population is overweight or obese, so it's, uh, it's certainly a, a concern. It also increases the risk, as you know, for osteoarthritis, uh, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. 
Hmm. That's awesome. So you can, this uh, product is a product you can buy at, you know, only online or grocery stores or yeah, it so makes we're, sense. Yeah, we're starting uh, online. Um, so our, our companies stay above nutrition and, uh, um, we're, you know, because brick and mortar is, is a bit of a challenge these days. Um, and it's, as you know, because of COVID, uh, even brick and mortar, I think, has taken a bigger hit. You're probably familiar with GNC stores. Um, you, well, you won't see them anymore. Uh, that brick and mortar is gone. So um, I think more and more people and it's I think COVID has accelerated the online sales by probably 10 years, I think, uh, really kickstarted them. So I think uh, most things are uh, people are getting used to just buying stuff online. For the convenience. Okay. What about um, for those that are plant-based or vegetarian, uh, you know, yeah. what kind of options do you have for that? Yeah, no, that's an excellent question. Uh, and we've thought a lot about this over the years um, because there are studies that have clearly shown that in vegan uh, vegetarians, uh, supplementation with creatine monohydrate actually improved uh, metrics of memory and cognition. Um and we know for sure from muscle biopsies in these patients that their uh, total uh, creatine, which is your phosphorylated form and the non-phosphorylated, are lower if you're a vegan by almost 30%. And uh, they've not, that I've seen done studies on the brain, but the brain and muscle are usually pretty similar. Uh, and so that was interesting. So clearly a vegan, it would be prudent, I think, to have uh, creatine monohydrate, probably three grams a day, which is about twice a normal meat in, uh, eater's intake, um, would be sufficient. And you know, we've uh, given this to patients with neuromuscular disease for 30 years without any issues. But the quality of the protein with respect to muscle, important question. So we did uh, some studies with Stu Phillips a few years ago where we did biopsies on people taking milk-based protein versus soy. And the milk-based protein to a first approximation was about three times more effective at uh, building muscle. But if you think about it, it makes sense. What do cows feed their babies, right? Milk. What do humans feed their babies? Milk. So Mother Nature probably selected for milk and the proteins in milk to be the optimal uh, mix of amino acids to build a human body or a cow's body. And so to build muscle, you need a good complement of what we call essential and non-essential amino acids. Now, uh, one of uh, Stu Phillips's other supervisors when he did a postdoc down in Texas, Bob Wolf, who was one of my mentors in the protein synthetic field, uh, he and Arnie Ferrando have worked on trying to add amino acids back to sort of take a plant-based protein, bring it up to that of, uh, of a, um, a meat or a milk-based protein. And, uh, and they've got a patent on that. Um, but that's certainly a concept um, that uh, some people have, uh, have tried to capitalize on. But that's really the best way to do it. Now, you can try to use complementary proteins to build this up, or you can take a plant protein, add back amino acids. Uh, that's certainly another, another strategy that one can use. So you've, <clears throat> excuse me, you've touched on um, what you're working on and some of the things that you're involved with right now, is there anything um, coming down the pipeline we should be aware of from a research standpoint, what you're working on? I know we re we've been looking at the NIH um, study that's coming out. I believe they're recruiting the Molecular Transducers of Physical Activity Consortium. Um, if you could touch on that, if you are aware of it, or what you're working on currently that we can keep our eyes out for. Yeah, I mean, uh, we'll see where that goes. I don't think we're going to learn a whole heck of a lot more than we already know. We've done a lot <laughs> of uh, gene transcription and, you know, collaborating with the group in Sweden now. We're, uh, we're looking at uh, effects of uh, exercise uh, using a thing called RNA sequencing to look at all the different types of RNA and how they change with, uh, with exercise and aging. Um, uh, one of the things that we're circling back to is we've done a lot of work uh, characterizing the molecular and, um, and functional implications of immobilization. So it's a big issue because uh, when we put a cast on young, healthy, you know, kinesiology students, what we found was within two days, the molecular pattern already said, let's shut down the mitochondria, dramatic decrease in the RNA. By 14 days, however, we saw decreases in muscle mass, decreases in strength, which yes, everyone's seen that before but we found a 25 to 30% drop in mitochondria. So trying to maintain those mitochondria is important. We also saw an increase in something called oxidative stress. 
And we now know that things like going on a ventilator when you've got COVID, part of the reason why the diaphragm atrophies and it's hard to get off the ventilator is due to oxidative stress damage. And Scotty Powers down in Florida has done all of that. So we're working on ways to try and uh, take what we know about oxidative stress, mitochondrial function and protein and come up with uh, combination supplements that can be used if you're going into surgery to protect against the atrophy that occurs, protect against the oxidative stress, uh, which perpetuates some of the problems that are uh, going on. And, uh, you know, we've got several of those in the pipeline and we're going to be doing those studies a little later on uh, in, in the fall. Um, we're doing a lot of work with different muscular dystrophies, uh, looking at uh, gene expression profiles and, and the response to exercise. And we've just completed a study with myotonic muscular dystrophy type 1, uh, where we did muscle biopsies before and after. And uh, this defect affects the splicing of RNA, and they are profoundly weak. Uh, one lady came in, and she could barely walk from the front of the uh, clinic into the gym she was about 23 seconds on the bike the first time she did it. But in spite of this, and I wish people could get a, a, an appreciation for how weak she was, within four months of training, she was able to go stay on that bike three times a week for 30 minutes, and her fitness went up 37%, her VO2 max, her stair climb, her get-up-and-go time, uh, and her lean body mass on the DEXA uh, went up over two kilos of pure muscle mass. So. Oh, hey. When you can take somebody who's that profoundly impaired, you know, I think pretty much anybody can show improvements. And I think that these patients are inspiration for any uh, older adult who feels that they're, they're too, um, you know, sarcopenic to exercise. Hmm. So there's many other things we're working on, but, uh, you know, uh, we're looking at uh, radiation protection. Um, you know, when you get an x-ray for your, your hip, a CT for your brain, again, uh, you damage mitochondria, you damage DNA. And uh, it's an important component that we're looking at. But we could go on forever because we have so many projects going on, but uh, yeah. we've hit some of the big ones. Well, that means that we need to get you back. <laughs> I got to tell you, this has been this has been awesome. I, this is why I love doing the podcast. It's kind of like sitting and having a chat with like world leading experts and people that think outside the box or that believe that there's not even a box to begin with, such as yourself. So thank you we're gonna wrap it up now and just want to thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule and um you know if we can take a bit of a iou to maybe check in later uh, um to see what kind of new things are advancing and coming down the pipe that would be awesome my pleasure thanks so much yeah thank, thank you. you so much great well, and thank you to all of our listeners for uh, joining us today on the Chasm podcast. And uh, you can find us on Spotify, SoundCloud, and hopefully Apple iTunes soon. And um, yeah, leave us a review, ask us some questions, and we'll be in touch soon.